lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Great to be here today, and I've got a really interesting guest, Dr. John Faber. And John, what impresses me about you is you kind of what I aspire to be. You never stop learning. You graduated from the University of Minnesota in 85 as an MD. You did your internship, your residency, your fellowship, adult psychiatry, child and adolescent, all at UCLA Medical. You went on to do a forensic psychiatry fellowship. You went on to the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and now you've started at George Washington University with the Integrative Medicine Master's Program. I think that is amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for the nice uh, compliment. I think it's what you do with the knowledge, though. It's the wisdom of what you learn that hopefully brings health. That really matters. (laughs) Well, you're right. We do have to apply it all. And I think you you spent the last eight years at the Amen Clinic, um, and I'm sure that's provided a great opportunity to apply some of that knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, one, we do a lot of work with, um, we call neuroimaging with spec scans. It's an objective measure that looks at blood flow to the brain and from looking at where the brain gets too much blood flow or too little blood flow. We've been able to do over 160,000 scans now and um, associate that with symptoms from focus to depression to irritability uh, to other things. So that's sort of phase one. And then phase two is we're really not only looking how the brain affects the body, but also how the body now affects brain. So from hormones to estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, thyroid, your GI tract, amongst other things, we're trying to take a much more holistic and integrated approach to help the brain and body both live up to their optimum levels. Well, I think, you know, we come at things certainly the same way. I look at the brain differently. I look at the frequencies, the electrical activity in the brain. and But I certainly believe it's the mind-body-spiritual connection that that runs us all. And I'm sure we have some similarities in the type of people that we work with, people suffering from anxiety, depression, people that just have bad behavior. Um, and there's a reason for that. And what well, you and I were chatting earlier, and you had mentioned a book, Crucial Accountability. And it just sounds so powerful. I had to get that book because... You know, one of the hardest things that I have with my clients is yet when they're in my office, yes, 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 yes. But when they walk out that door, they they leave the accountability sitting right in my chair. Yeah, I mean, it's when you think about how much money people uh, pay to see you and then how much they pay to see us. And it's it's really the value that happens in between sessions that counts and to me, it's just such a, um, um, a hard uh, kind of a waste of money, at least, to not apply what you, what you know. But the, the accountability piece, it's a huge topic right now, and I think we're going to see a lot more just culturally um, the next four to five years, if not longer. Well, you know, but it's that accountability piece that's so difficult. I mean, it, re- it really is. And I think I know I have clients that they want to be accountable, but they don't know how. Yeah. Yeah, I think it gets kind of into then us, the, 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 the clinician, the how question is what's going on. Is it, one, a choice issue where they're just plain not wanting to do it um, versus an ability issue? They want to do it, but they just don't know how. Um, so that's sort of phase one. Two is the answers we get from our clients, they're not, they're not clear answers. I mean, you have to kind of ferret through a lot of other information to see how much of it is an ability versus a choice because you're going to treat each one differently. I think you're right. And one of I learned from my buddy Andrew when I talk to my clients about their crap and their thought process, clarity, relevance, accuracy, and precision. Because it's it's all that irrelevant stuff that we pull into our decision making and into forming our opinions. And it, it gives us a wrong story, I think. Yeah, I think story is the key word. Um, 
you know, we observe in here. Um, then we make our story. All right. And from that story, we develop feelings. And then from that, we develop our thoughts or beliefs. And it all sounds simple, but the reality is this, is we've got to become better at one, recognizing our story. But second is we've got to come a whole lot better about taking our story and putting it in the background while we try to figure out what the other person's story is. Well, I think some of us are more caught up with figuring out what the other person's story is than we are on our own. And when you think about it, I have a family that I've worked with several families. And usually they can't stand when the whole family gets together, you know, the holidays, because there's one person in the family that drives everybody crazy. But nobody will say anything to that person. You know, they're so they're so worried about what the other people's stories are that that they don't even stop and think about their own. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Or they unconsciously kind of know. And if it starts to come up, there's usually a lot of emotions and anger and frustration and nothing gets resolved. Um, Well, anger, you know, anger should be a four letter word because I see anger do more hurt and hurt. That's not necessarily forgivable. Um, you know, those explosive emotions take over. And now you did, you've worked with, you did an, a fellowship with, you know, adults and child and adolescents. What do you think is the most difficult population to deal with that explosive emotions? Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my kind of categorization and thinking has changed. I've used to say something like, well, if you've got like, say, really, really severe major depression, but now, and it kind of gets back to what you're doing too, is if your temporal lobes aren't electrophysiologically functioning from what you do, and from our perspective, if the temporal lobes aren't getting enough blood flow, it's a setup. Um, people just naturally get more angry and upset, um, and they don't know unless you take a look. I call that T6 in my world. There you <laughs> temporal go. right-sided, you know, it's – but. But it, it, the brain does have such such an amazing role, and that's one of the things that I enjoy is I, when I see people, when they can calm that brain down, then their self-confidence goes up, their self-esteem goes up, and then they start getting – then they're ready to work on themselves. You know, one of the biggest problems I see a lot of people with anxiety have is they can't keep their commitments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you, and you start thinking about it, and a lot of it's, okay, so someone could blame them. It's a choice issue. You're choosing not to do it. But a lot of times is they get into the, the mix of the commitment or whatever it is, from diet to exercise to deep breathing, whatever it may be, and they start getting some anxiety or they get start getting some angst, and they just want to, by nature, avoid it um, or procrastinate. We see that a lot, too. Um, the, the, the feeling fools us that we should avoid it when in actuality, um, the feeling we should hopefully learn to manage and, and direct it rather than having it guide us um, to making decisions which may not in the long run be in our best interest. Well, you know, it's interesting because in the book, The Crucial Accountability, it talks about the six sources of influence. And really it boils down to motivation and ability and motivation. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people ask me the question, Lee, can you, can, what part of the brain has to do with motivation? Can you fix that? Because motivation, it, it, it's very hard and, you know, it's got to come from within. Um, so t- talk to me a little bit about motivation. Well, I think there's a couple, you know, you mentioned earlier the biopsychosocial, spiritual aspect of it. You know, I think from, a biological aspect if, you know, the areas we see at least, if our uh, thalamus is overworking, we tend to have a hard time getting out of bed and lack motivation. Uh, sometimes if our basal ganglia, which we are just talking about anxiety, that can lead to lack of motivation. But simultaneously, there's the psychological piece. And really, once we know it's a motivational issue, um, the best way, and this is through research, is we've got to hit it with consequences. We still love you. We like you. But when you keep drinking, do you realize what risk this 
put you out for getting a DUI when you keep drinking? Do you realize that you could lose your job? Why do you keep hassling? Why do you keep hassling me? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to hassle you. We're not. But we are trying to let them know that what they're doing has potential later consequences, and we love and care about them so much. We don't want them to have to go down that road later. Um, you make a really good point on that is that, you know, we do as clinicians, we have a responsibility to help them look at it in a more broad way. I mean, there are consequences, there's ramifications. Who else are you hurting with your actions? Yeah. Who, yeah. Who else are you hurting long term? Is this, is this really the way you want to go? It's like you want to keep hitting and hitting them with things until something or her, whichever the case may be, until it hits. Uh, which, by the way, I, I, just from my training, I was taught more to focus on it's an ability issue, you know. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so rather than seeing it as a motivation, let's give you this book or, you know, this supplement or pill, which I'm not against, but you got to kind of look at the whole picture. So talk to me about ability. Yeah. I mean, so some people choose not to do things. Some people just they, they don't know how. Um they're thinking they might have not had the education or the knowledge in what to do. Um, they might have emotions, like we we're kind of talking about earlier, that that, that get in the way. Um, so uh, you know, those are emotions, feelings, those are two of the bigger ones um, that at least I see where you want to really try to start to help them learn if it's a, if it's an issue and how to kind of get beyond it. So do you think that, I mean, I do think, you know, there's a certain amount of ability that you have to have to start with, but I honestly believe that most people can learn and most people, if they have the motivation, can create the ability. Well, yeah, see, now you're bringing up an interesting uh, point because let's just, we'll give an example. Okay. You have a 21 year old male who's abusing drugs and alcohol. Um, and he lives at home with his parents still. The parents are supportive and caring, and it, which we're seeing a lot more, by the way. Um, the problem is they're friends. The people with whom they hang out with, they're all using. Okay, So the person may say, I want to quit, I want to quit. Um, and so, okay, well, what's the problem? Socially, there's another variable. It's your friends. Okay, so we need to look at friends. And then you start coming up with ability solutions. Well, they don't want to. There's no motivation um, to stop. So it gets, you're dealing with an ability issue, but now we're kind of back to, to motivation. Do you really want to leave, leave these friends? Do you realize what the problem is with these friends? Do you realize if you keep hanging out with these people, three of them been in jail, you could end up in there too. Is that what you really want to do? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a dance. I think you have to go back and forth between um, both. But I think as a therapist, we, and I'm just speaking from my own heart, and I may not point others, but is, You've got to be able to lovingly point out what are the legal, social, occupational, academic consequences of you continuing on this route um, and not feel like we have to say we're sorry for bringing them up, that we're really doing it out of care. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's my responsibility to speak up. In a nice way, in a positive way, but to just sit back and remain silence, that, to me, I'm not doing my job, and I'm not helping them. I'm not helping anybody. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you said, is how do you, how do you say it and say it with compassion? Because uh, silence is just as unhealthy as becoming overly upset, right? And so... Um, I think we're going to see a lot more. We've, we've got to learn how to do this. And not just mental health. I think just as a country, um, we've got to learn how to do this better. Boy, we're going to, the next few months are going to be really interesting. But, you know, one of the things I try to do with my clients is I try to just start with the facts. Okay, what are the facts? You know, let's let's put that down on paper. Because I find if you if they can actually write it down on paper, it becomes a whole lot more real. That's a I mean that's a great idea. Yeah, it's like you can't hide it in the in your your back memory. It's there, looking at you square in the face. Yep. It's there, 
And once it's on paper, though, then that gets scary because now I'm, I'm going to have to do something with this. And I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure how to do it. And a lot of times then you'll see that piece of paper just disappear. So when someone comes to you and says, I need a plan, help me get a plan. How do you answer that question? Um, well, I think the, the key is, is, is let's start writing on a plan. Um, one, uh, and so what, is, what does that mean for a, a, a therapist or, you know, of any nature is you've got to be able to creatively and strategically come up with concrete plans that are smart, actionable, right, relevant, uh, yep. timely, uh, that you follow. So setting up some smart goals to help that person get from point A to point B, um, you know, it sounds simple, but when you start thinking about it, it takes some quick, um, fast creativity um, to get someone engaged and start writing down. And then simultaneously, while you're doing all that, you've got to look at their nonverbals to see what's hitting or what's not hitting. Yeah, because if, they, if they're wearing those shoulders as earrings while they're doing it, they're feeling pretty anxious about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sort of as an, on the same topic, what we're starting to see develop out in the in in the mental health world is um, something called um, measurement based care, mm-hmm. where before um, our clients or patients come in, they're filling out questionnaires um, that either we've chosen or certain companies have, have t- taken, um, and so when that person comes in, you've got a good idea already how they're doing or not doing. So rather than kind of digging through your notes and trying to put a story together, you're seeing something with colors and, and arrows and, and bars to say, oh, my God, this person's really having a hard time. Um, and th- th- then they see it as well. So it gives them something to look at and measure rather than just um, our using our biases, which is a whole other topic, to use um, some data-driven material to get people where they need um, to be. Well, I think you're so right with the measurements because we work off of treatment goals and, you know, every week we'll touch base. So, so how are you working? You know, how is your anxiety? Well, it's better. Well, did you hit, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you said your average was around seven for 60% of the day. Are you, are you still hitting seven? Well, you know, no, actually I haven't hit seven this week so they have to and i tell everybody i don't care how old you are if you don't know what you're looking for you're not going to find it you have got to know what you're looking for no i think that i like that if you're not sure what you're looking for you're not going to find it that's that's a great way to put it i love that i'm going to remember that one (laughs) i mean i just believe you know no matter what age you are because let's face it Problems are really complex. It sounds so simple. You know, we'll just get over it. And you know, I understand you've been through some trauma, and but that would get over it and, and move on. But problems are so complex and they're so hard to unbundle. You know, what is your first step if someone, if you can see, oh my gosh, we're going to have to bust this up? What's your first step? If if there's a problem that I've got to bust up and break it down? Yes. Well, well for I, them, I mean, they can't do it. Yeah, so I would add a preamble. Okay, let's like – let's take – let's start off by taking a 40,000-foot look at this you know, okay. and take a step back. You know, Let's kind of see – that way it takes the edge off whatever the emotions are okay. with it just to see, hear – sense what's going on and then say from a $40,000 or 40,000 foot kind of peak, where would you like to see yourself go? Have some fun with this. You know, um, don't assume the worst and don't assume the best. Um, but just take this and, and grab it. Now they may start grabbing it. They may not. It's like, well, you know, let's say you're, um, l- let's go back to the substance abusing kid. Okay. Um, what do you want? To, what are you going to do to stay away from these these kids? I don't know. Okay, well, you know, then this is where we therapists have to come in and start coming up with some concrete, you know, goals that might be reachable. Well, you know, seven days that might be hard to do. It's like, well, what if we just shoot for, you know, 
Thursday night, you go to a movie instead. Make it simple. Let's just make a contract, a commitment. So there's another word, commitment, which we don't like to hear. But if we're going to get serious, you know, those are the things we have to look at. Commitment to 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 staying in watching a movie instead, you know, and then start building on that. You watch how they feel, what they're thinking. Um, they may not like it. They they may they may like it. Well, you don't like it. It's like gosh. So when I say that, what what kinds of things come up? What's what's sort of the issues that are are making that difficult? And then when they tell you, you start figuring out: is this more of a choice issue versus they just don't know what to do? Um, and then build on that. So there's a dance that goes on. Um, and and to, for people to say, oh, it's simple. It, it, it's simple in the stack. Anyone can write a plan. To make a dynamic plan. And that takes some art because you got to come up with creative ideas, concrete ideas, and then watch the other person's nonverbals um, and work with it to make it meaningful, relevant, and motivational for them. Well, you know, I, I think you're right. And what I have found, you know, we all, we all have those little ants, those automatic negative thoughts. They're so fast and furious. They go running through our head. We don't even know we were there. But what I see interfere with people with their plans is when they start doing the fortune telling or the mind reading. You know, I feel like saying a lot of times I say, put your crystal ball up. You cannot, you know, well, I know what's going to happen. I just know if I do this, this is going to happen. Stop trying to fortune tell. And when they can get put that aside, it kind of helps them to stay more focused on what their plan is. I mean, I, I think sometimes we're, we're our own worst enemy. Those self-defeating thoughts. We all have them. I have them. You know, it's really cool. It's like, and I love what you're doing is you're, you're taking something that may be very vague and abstract for that person and you're labeling it. You're, you're letting them hear, see what it is. So that way, uh, right in the experiential moment, you can start to change it. And I like the the wording you use for fortune telling. It it really helps um, the other person not feel like they're being judged, but they're actually learning self awareness and self management skills by the technique you just described. Well, you you brought up a very important word, and that's judged, because judgment. Nobody wants it. And that is one thing I have found. One of the first things I'll say to my clients is, look, I'm not judging you and I'm not criticizing you. But let me tell you what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. Because I know myself, when you start judging me, I just start shutting down. You know, um, nobody wants to be judged. So. Well, yeah. And then I think what you just said, it's like, OK, so judgment is. That is when we make an assessment of what we're hearing and seeing and labeling a person. If we just stick with what we're hearing and seeing, what you just described, all you're doing is talking about what you're hearing and what you're seeing. You're not putting a mark on that particular person. And it makes it a lot easier to get back into the accountability piece that you were talking about earlier. Well, and it's that accountability piece that is so hard, really, to get into. I mean, there's so much work that you do to get to that point where, okay, I really do. I, I want to be able to get to work every day. I don't want to miss any work, you know. And sometimes it's just as the only reason they can't get to work is because they're just so tired that they can't get up and get out of bed. But the accountability piece once we can get them to where they're ready to start talking accountability, then it's it's almost like a whole new world. And I know that you work with people a lot on a long range. You know, how do you get a plan and what's involved in a plan? Who, what, when? But the thing that to me is the most important for the for having a plan is to follow up because I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, I forgot or, you know, I just want to be nice. I don't want to bug them. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I'd really like to talk a little bit about, you know, having helping people to have a plan, giving them some tips for what they do in those really tough situations that kind of takes us off plan or gives us an excuse to get off a plan. Because when the, everything's going my way, 
I can stay on plan. I can make everything happen. But when something comes at me that I'm not expecting, then I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure what to do. So I think that we can all benefit from some just tips for tough situations. We'll be back after these messages. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures and cures. To her audience in workplaces, seminars and salons, her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday. It's words you never heard. We spend a lot of time in front of it, but do you know who invented the television set? The short answer is John Logie Baird, who invented the television set in 1925. The longer answer is that many people worked on different inventions that eventually came together to make a television set. The very first television show was a broadcast of the opening ceremony of the New York World's Fair in 1939. The first television commercial was for Bull of Watches. The cost of that commercial? Four dollars. And so began the herkle-durkle and thurgy-lurgy, or the idle relaxation of watching television. Of course, in the early days, we got a lot of exercise watching TV. We had to walk both ways to the television set to change the channel. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back and we want to talk about, you know, it's, it is hard to have a plan, but the hard part starts when you have to implement the plan and how you follow up on things. And, you know, I used to laugh at my husband because he had these little yellow sticky notes everywhere, but you know what? He got things done and he followed up on it. So there's, there's different tactics, right, John? There's definitely different tactics, yeah, to try to get things uh, executed and done. That is for sure. So what do you think is the biggest barrier? I mean, there's almost like, okay, I, I know who's going to do it, what, I know when, you know, I got that down. But then there seems to be this huge gap. You know, you need a bridge to get you to the other side. Yeah, I mean, uh, and what what's the, what's the barrier? I think the barrier, uh, a lot of times, it's just our unrealistic expectations. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think it's both sides. You know, you come in, um, you know, I'll, I'll just speaking from the heart. You, th- you know, here's your diet going to, you know, high protein, low fat, Mediterranean style diet. You say it, and you assume it's going to get done. Well, no, it, it's like reality hits. Things change. Um, cash flow change, whatever the case may be. So you use those as stepping stones not to come back and say, oh, you know, unconsciously, oh, my gosh, why aren't they doing any of this stuff? This is kind of like really frustrating as opposed to, okay, they're not doing some of these things. Let's figure out what's working. Let's figure out what's not. And then we work the, we work the plan. You know, and I think work the plan is that's why they call it work the plan. It's, it's, it, things change. 
Nothing well, you know, it's interesting because you, when you're talking about, I've had a person, a client come in and she was so focused on her, on her diet, but that really wasn't the problem. The problem was the fact that she was not exercising, but she didn't want to talk about that. But, but she wasn't getting, she wanted to put all of her focus on her diet, what she ate. And finally, when I asked her, are you getting the results that you want from changing your diet? The answer was no. It's because she wasn't focusing on the problem. Um, no, I totally agree. Yeah, it's just, if you're not focusing on it, you're not going to know what to do. You know, and that's where if we're a good therapist, we could use like what if questions. Yeah, you know that. Okay, so you're going to go home this week, you know, and, you know, uh, it's time to exercise um, and you don't really like it. You know, what if somebody, your kid says, well, will you help me with my homework? What are you going to do? You know, or maybe there's a cool TV show. What if? So you just throw things out so they can start thinking for themselves, um, you know, how to initiate you know, improvise, change. So, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're in this program at George Washington University, Integrative Medicine, and that sounds so inviting to me. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. Talk, what have you pulled from that program into your practice? Oh, my gosh. So, um, yeah, so the George Washington University program um, – Professional, like a medical doctor can take it, but also people who are pretty much at any level of healthcare can take the, the, the course. Um, it's uh, one, it's not easy, okay? It's it's definitely going to challenge you, and there's nights when you're going to have to write things, but it's fun. It's fun. So, why would you put yourself through an arduous program like that? And I think the key is, is where is medicine going? One, and as any entity, things change. When I went to medical school, there was a higher emphasis on illness. You know, what's wrong? Here's the diagnosis. Here's the medication you use. Here's the side effects. Memorize all that stuff. Now we're seeing a much higher emphasis on health. Okay. So what does that mean? It means that maybe rather than memorizing, you know, 15 medications and side effects, I go back and I memorize you know, the effects, side effects, and the signs of people with low vitamin A or low vitamin D, which, by the way, we're seeing a lot of low vitamin D, um, and know how to communicate in a way at the patient level, not my level, but them to help them get excited uh, and, 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 and encouraged and inspired to change um, about things you can't see. You can't see vitamin D, so how can you as a a clinician, get them pired up to want to make a difference. And I think there's a lot of, you know, that's a whole other topic and it's becoming a topic as well. But the program is taking medicine, and this is my opinion, where it's going in the 21st century, and challenging you as a clinician to step up to the plate. It's not easy. Um, it's not something where you go, this is always fun, but you're stretched and you're pushed. And at the end of the day, you look back and say, thank God, I'm actually helping people at a whole um, higher level. Um, one of the things we do at our clinic is we get um, we get follow-ups uh, after like we see X number of patients, we get a follow-up. And so they usually happen about once a year. Um, I know what my scores were from like say two years ago. And when I started taking these courses, I said, well, um, I don't really care what people are saying because that's a whole other dynamic just at work. Why would you put yourself through all this, you know, arduous work? I mainly care about what, what does the data show? Because if my, 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 the outcomes are improving, then it's worth the investment, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, my scores have gone up, you know um, – like five to six percentage points, which may not seem like much, but it's when you look at where I'm at compared to where I was a couple of years ago. And, you know, you always compete with your peers where they're at. It's huge. It's well, and it feels huge. good, doesn't it? To yes. see that you're moving in the right direction. You know? 
Yeah. I don't care if it's 2%. As long as I'm going in the right direction, I can get excited about it. Well, yeah, it gets back to the measurement piece and just seeing uh, it's inspiring. Um, medicine can easily become, and I'm speaking from experience, kind of a detached scientific statistical world um, that sometimes lacks the connection, the engagement, and then I think most importantly, the application of how to help this person who's in front of you at this moment, at this at this time, and in this setting to get them to lead and have a better and healthy quality of your lifestyle. And when you see them change, oh my gosh, it's like you go, I can't believe it. It's like, I didn't think this would help. And it's actually helping. Well, you know, it's funny because that's where I get my inspiration from is when I see even my, you know, my family, my friends, but my clients, when I see them make that positive change, it inspires me. Okay, Lee, come on, girl, you know, you can do something different. I have to tell you, I just, during the last few months, I had put my upstairs, I'd made it into a nice little office. And in the, about two weeks ago, no, more like three weeks ago, I changed that nice little office into a little painting studio. Well, and it, just little. You know, I'm just painting with some acrylics, but I was inspired to do that by one of my clients, the change that they made. And I thought, you know what? I would love, it's a great way to express yourself. I'd love to, you know, give that right side of my brain some energy, get creative. So it's inspiration comes from everywhere. Well, in in that, here you're making something that never existed. That's true. And then second, it's like, I didn't think I could make that. And then when you make it, how does that make you feel? Makes me feel really talented. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know that anybody else would feel the same way that Lee was talented when they saw it. But you know what? It doesn't matter because I'm not doing it for anybody else. Yep. So, and I think you're right. And I don't know the world of medicine the way that you do. Um, But I did start off when I got board certified in neurofeedback back in 2005. I worked in a neurologist's office. And it was was different. But now he was a different neurologist. Um, He used kinesiology as a diagnostic tool. And I learned a, a lot from him. But certainly... You know, coming at it from a behavioral health side, which is the way I have since 2009 when I started this practice, it's you do come at it differently. And I am starting to see more and more of medicine kind of coming more from the behavioral health. Um, no, I think you're right. And, and I think people are realizing it's like, hey, if you um, have high blood pressure and you're not taking your medication – it's a behavioral health issue. <laughs> but know? there's nobody that can take that medication for you. You got to do it. Yeah. And that gets that gets back to that accountability piece. There you go. I mean, it, it it it's you're not taking your medication. How hard is that to do? But apparently, it's it is for some people, and it gets back to that accountability. So. You probably you work with more people because you're licensed to manage meds, and I'm not. So when you're helping people manage their meds, how do you do that? Um, well, I think over the years, one is um, the li- the lower the amount of medications, the better. I mean, um, there was a point in the, at least my practice where you know three to four medications was kind of the norm, um, and now it's like there's just too many side effects. So That'd be kind of phase one. That's the simple part. Then the, the second part is how do you discover and be enthusiastic and curious about learning what's prompting or not prompting this individual to take their meds, but also their supplements, you know, as well. And well, it's are you finding that are you finding that you can put supplements in in place of meds? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're at a point. Um, if you kind of just look at the the culture, where, where where at least brain health is going, one part of it. This is my opinion and observation, so I don't have any data to back this up. But gyms used to 
you go in, you work out, what do you get after it? You get your protein powder, your creatinine, you know, you get all your kind of like micronutrients. And now we're kind of seeing that same kind of analogy happening with the brain where depending on what parts of the brain are working too hard or too little or what your symptoms are, you look at different things from, you know, 5-hydroxytryptophan to SAMe to non-HCL betaine to GABA to taurine, et cetera, et cetera, to help your brain, which is kind of like a muscle, work at a more optimal level. Well, it's those neurotransmitters that, you know, I focus on the electrical frequencies, but those you focus on more even the chemical because all those neurotransmitters, the thyroid, all of those are more chemical synapses. Well, yeah, and so now you bring up another good point. It's like, okay, so... There's the biochemical piece, but there's the electrical, electrophysiological piece. So how do we start to collaborate? And how do we start to learn and appreciate and respect what all these other different professions are doing? Well, what you're doing is fascinating. I mean, it's like it's daunt. I mean, the amount of material is daunting. Um, I respect you guys because you know a lot more than me. But that's where we got to work together, I think, and say, hey, the big goal is let's hit the brain from as many angles safely as possible and see how we can change. Absolutely. You know, one of the hardest things that I have a tough time getting my clients to do is to work on their breathing. And everybody knows that, you know, how did you (laughs) – I was in labor. What do you do? You breathe. I mean, breathing will get you through and will, will, you can get that panic attack down. So when I talk, talk to people about breathing, I explain to them, you know, if you slow your breath rate down, you slow your heart rate down. If you can get your breath rate and your heart rate to dance together, then you're creating heart rate variability. You're creating wellness. And I think people like to see that connection. Um, you know, I'm amazed. I saw a statistic once that said 60% of the calls that go into 911, I'm having a heart attack, I'm having a heart attack, they're having a panic attack. Because when you start taking that real short, choppy breath, then what does your heart start doing? Boom, 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 boom. Yep. And then what do you think? I'm having a heart attack. Yep. So I think there is, I agree with what you're saying, that, that we we do have to take an integrated approach um that program sounds fascinating to me um no i mean it's like you'll you'll be stretched but it's really it's cutting edge um from the first day you walk in there and they in a pragmatic way push you to (laughs) learn practical medicine so it's great well as long as they don't shove me i'm good Ah. pushed yeah it's like a good stretch yeah well, and it's good to hear. It's good to hear that that medicine and even the business world is starting to look at things differently. I think that. I mean, I can't tell you. I have a couple clients that are in HR and diversity. What's the most important thing? It's diversity, um, and whether it's diversity and how they manage their health care, or how, or you know, more racial or gender. It's all about diversity. I mean, that's a whole, I mean, that's a huge topic. Um, I run a foundation on the side where we reach out to the inner city youth in L.A. who are into performing arts but haven't really had the, um, the, 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 the resources to learn leadership skills. So like dream building, motivation, purpose, tenacity, et cetera. So we kind of come in and, 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 and meet that piece. Um, and there is, it, there's just a lot of tension right now. And it's like, you know, you kind of learn every day on how to try to hopefully resolve conflicts. You try to help people, you think you are, but other people might think you're, you know, what are you doing with those people? I thought I was taking care of them. And it's like, wow, it's like, you didn't even realize we're doing that, you know? And so then you got to talk and see if you can resolve issues and stay open-minded, um, Harvard Business Review has been looking at this pretty hard the last few months, um, but it's it's been a real eye-opener. It's like a, it amazes me how much I've got to learn on the area. Things you oh, just I- realize you're doing, you're doing. 
I hope I never stop learning. The day I stop learning, just kick sand over my face and we'll be done. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That's, and that's what makes life fun too, right? And why do people get older, stay younger? And we're living so much longer. But, you know, part of that, I think, is is we're learning to be flexible because it's a new world. We see new problems emerge. And how do we get through them? Well, we'd be flexible. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, that that's another word. You can It sounds simple, but start doing it. And boy, you'll find about 15 things you can work on. <laughs> You know, in a, in a good way. It's not like you're a bad person, right? It's just, you know, it's like growth. Um, it is growth. And I think that we're, I, I don't know about you, but COVID-19 helped me to hit the pause button. And I needed to take that pause. I truly did. And I'm, I'm going to say the same thing that I said last year. I guess I only have one mantra. Last year, the hurricane took down my office, and my mantra was, I'm coming back bigger and better and stronger. And after COVID-19, I'm coming back bigger and better and stronger. And so do you do you think that affirmations, or if you're a Tony Robbins fan, incarnations, or, you know, just positive words make a difference? Um, I think they make a difference. Um, my own personal belief, the disciplines you set up for yourself personally that work, whether it be reading, you know, inspirational books, leadership books, journaling, TED Talk, whatever it is. Okay? Because we all got things we can grow and learn on. Whatever your, your best way is, that's what's the best. Um, and I think you mentioned one, journaling, and that is something that I find to be so helpful because you've got, you know, you've got all this stuff going on in your head. You've got these ruminating thoughts. You've got all this stuff from the subconscious working its way up into the conscious. And I can't tell you how many people will come in and they'll say, I can't turn my brain off. I cannot turn my brain off. Well, if you get it, you've got to get all of that stuff that's going around and around your head one way to get it out is to put it on paper. Well, yeah, it's like if you're going to manage um, others, you know, if you're a parent, you know, or if you're even a, like your own, you know, you have your own, your own business, uh, how do you manage yourself? Because if you can't manage yourself, it, it's, 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 it's a lot more difficult. And journaling is, is one great way uh, to do that. I mean, just sort of personally – um, I went, this is 21 years ago, I was at uh, uh, leadership author John Maxwell's house, and um, I was 40 at the time, and he took us into his office, and he says, well, here's what I do when I want to write something, so let's pick a topic, so someone said, you know, um, let's do something, uh, planning, since we talked about planning, so he goes back into his, his office, and he pulls out like a big folder on planning, and the folder is Things on planning from conferences and books and notes he's kept since age 21. Wow. And I'm saying to myself, what in Lord's name have I been doing since age 20? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, my focus, which I won't go into, was on completely different things. But that said, I said, okay, I'm making a commitment. I, I'm journaling. I got two journals. I got my left brain journal, which is like a Microsoft Word. I, rather than type, I talk and type so I can do a page and a half in like a minute. And I've stored every entry, and there's thousands um, there, and I've categorized them so I can look up subjects quickly. And then second, I've got my right brain journal, which is making mind maps using um, OneNote from Microsoft. I hope I'm not... Uh, breaking any barriers by saying the programs, but there I, I can go back since 2010, pick a topic planning and I, I could do it right now. And I pull up probably about 20 entries where I've got mind maps, with arrows and circles. And, and it's like some author I've read. So I incorporate their higher thinking than me because they spent time doing it and then incorporate my experiences to, to see where I need to grow and develop. And so it's like planning my own personal uh, plan to develop. Now, it's not so much for me, but people who are listening, this is the kind of stuff we can do. 
and it's not that difficult. And it doesn't cost anything. Right. I mean, you can just go get a spiral. You don't need a beautiful leather journal or, you know, go to the dollar store and get a spiral. And because what's going on in your head is what's a lot of times is what's driving your heart. And you, we wonder, why can't I make a clear decision? Why do I get so emotional about that? Why do I end up screaming and shouting and walking away? Yep. Because you got all that stuff going on in your head. So journaling is a great way to get it out. It, just any other tips you'd like to mention for our listeners that you have found to be really successful? Well, um, the other thing I would encourage, it's like – Whatever you read or you watch, um, make another folder, okay, whether it's writing them down or organizing them on your computer, where you keep like just awesome quotes that are and can be used for you then or at a later time. Okay, so things you've read that you found helpful and really important, you can pick those things up and then subsequently use them. Um, to kind of help. Yeah. So when you were talking about planning, okay, I pulled up my quotes on planning. I've got like probably, let's see, I've got 10 pages on planning. By the way, accountability, I've got 106 pages now of quotes. So give, give me your two best quotes on accountability. So just- two best quotes on accountability. So what I do is I just, I'm in the folder now, I've got 106 pages. Um, well, we got two minutes, so go quick. Yeah, so um, I'll just pick – let's pick out one here quickly. Taking complete ownership of your outcomes by holding no one but yourself responsible for that is the most powerful thing you can do to drive your success. Gary Keller, uh, who owns um, Keller Williams Real Estate. There you go. Yeah, that's it. That's any other quick one for us? Accountability means answering or atoning for your actions and results. It is something every leader wants more of from his or her team, including themselves, from B.J. Cullen, stick with it. So so is that the same thing as saying own it? Thank you. I mean, sometimes, you yeah, we just have to own it. And it sounds good one day, and then the next day, did I say that? Oh, I don't remember saying that. So it's all, it's all about owning it. Own and, you it. know, John, I just want to thank you so much because sharing your experience and your education, which is very impressive with us today, and I I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. I know you've got your personal interests that you mentioned, and you're working at the Amen Clinics, so you've got a lot on your plate. I so appreciate you, and I, you know what my takeaway from this was? The way that I look at motivation and ability. Yeah. And I and I appreciate because I appreciate you sharing your insight there with me. Because it's something I mean, motivation will I think will always be a question for all of us. You know, how do I get motivated? How do I stay motivated? But understanding that ability has something to do with it really kind of helped me pull it together and now when i question myself and i need to get motivated i'll stop and think about my ability there you go on behalf of lee richardson and the brain performance center we want to thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more episodes like this visit us on itunes google play toginet Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify.